Our Father in heaven, those songs remind us that you are inexpressibly great. There are no words that we can find to adequately express how great you are, Lord. And Lord, because of your greatness, we, we understand that we ought to always be ready to worship you, to extol you, to praise you, and to make you known to others, Father. But so often, at least for myself, uh, our hearts are slow and apathetic and cold, Lord. We just pray that, that you would get the worship that you are worthy of out of us, Lord, that you would, even now through your word, this morning, that you would soften our hearts, that you would inflame our hearts with a love for you and a zeal for your glory, Lord, to glorify you in our, our lives and with our lips, Lord. We pray that by your spirit you would bless our time in your word as we study it together and as we submit ourselves to it. Father, give us hearts um, that are ready to obey. Give us ears to hear and we pray that your spirit would teach us this morning, Lord. We are not uh, able to mine the depths of your word apart from your spirit because it's only, only your spirit, only he is able to um, instruct us in the mind of God because only he knows the mind of God. And we thank you that he has moved men to write down your word so that we might know what is in the mind of God. And we want to know more, not so that we can win trivia contests, Lord, or win arguments, but so that we can better worship you and better make you known to others. May you accomplish that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we finished the book of Hebrews, I thought it might be good just to take a little bit of time and work through some of the Psalms. Um, I had preached Psalm 1 not too long ago. It was on a graduation Sunday a year or two ago, so I thought we would pick up with Psalm 2. So if you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. This is another royal psalm. We read it for our call to worship, and as you're turning there, I'll read it again for us. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will, tell, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son or kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm is speaking of the crowning of a king. And when we think of 
the crowning of a king. We think of a a transition or a transfer in leadership from one to another. And transitions in power are often difficult for nations and kingdoms to endure. When there is an open question as to who is actually the one in charge, in power, that kingdom or that government is divided, creating opportunities for enemies to capitalize on the confusion and to exploit that momentary weakness in that nation. Or if it is clear who's the new ruler, but the people don't like that new ruler, oftentimes they rebel and a civil war ensues. Or if the military doesn't like that new ruler, they can stage a coup. In our own most recent election, we got a taste of how leadership transition can be tumultuous and it can be dangerous. However, when it comes to God's kingdom and when it comes to the king that he has placed upon the throne, there is no confusion. There is no threat. There is no weakness. There's no indecision. There are no open questions as to the legitimacy of this king. And that king is Jesus. And the second psalm, which we are looking at this morning, makes that as plain as day. He is the king. No questions. According to Acts 4, you can turn there if you like, this psalm was written by King David. Acts 4, in that chapter, Peter and John, they had been imprisoned for sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and they've been released. And when we come to verse 23 of Acts 4, it says this, When they, Peter and John, had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, and then they quote the first two verses of Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So we see they ascribe this psalm to David. And we also see in that passage that this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's likely that when David wrote this second psalm, it's likely that he had the Davidic covenant in mind, the covenant that God had made with him. Um, If you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this covenant. Remember, David was wanting to build a temple for God. And God, through the prophet Nathan, said, no, you're not going to build it. Instead, one of your descendants is going to build it. And then God made an amazing promise to David. We'll pick it up in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. Verse 12. God says, When your days are complete 
and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 14 is key for our psalm. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now this covenant, if you look at verse 14, when he says, I'll be a father to him, this descendant of yours, David, and he will be a son to me. But then it goes on to say, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So we know that ultimately this covenant applies to Jesus, right? But he never sinned. So we know that there's also a reference here to others of David's sons who would precede the Lord Jesus, at least speaking of Solomon. And in fact, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down for later reference, 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verses 8 through 10, Solomon actually um, views himself as a fulfillment of that Davidic covenant at the consecration of the temple. He says, God, your word to my father has been fulfilled in me raising up this temple. So there's at least to a degree application made to David's descendants other than the Lord Jesus, but obviously it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself. That is evident. And understanding that the Davidic covenant had application to not just Jesus, though ultimately to him, but also to others of David's descendants, it gives us a little bit of insight into this psalm, back in Psalm 2. Because this psalm likely also had application in a more limited sense for the kingship of David himself and each one of his heirs to his throne. But obviously, it finds its ultimate and most complete fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's just something that's helpful in understanding this psalm as we go through it. And this psalm is neatly broken down into four sections of three verses each. And the first section, we see the nation's rebellion. The nation's rebellion. Verse 1, the psalm begins with a question. David poses a question. He says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, David is not asking this question in order to gain information. No, he's asking this question in response to insane and wicked behavior that he's seeing. For instance, take yourselves driving down the highway. We've all had the experience there's a blur to our left and this this car that's just racing down the road and it's weaving in and out of traffic causing cars to slam on their brakes and honk their horns and we exclaim what why are they doing that it's insane and it's evil so stop doing that if that's you that's not right but David is wondering at the fact that the peoples are devising a vain thing an empty thing something that cannot possibly be effective and that will only result in harm, not only for others, but for themselves. 
He says, why are they doing this? He goes on in verses 2 to 3 to explain to us what the nations are in a rage about, what insane and wicked thing they are planning. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, the main thing I want you to notice in those two verses is the attitude of these rulers and these nations, their attitude toward the rule of God and of Christ over them. What is their attitude toward the rule of God and his Christ? They feel that the rule of God over them is an intolerable constraint. They feel that it is a cruel bondage of which they would give anything to be free from. And that poses a question for us. Is that how you view the rule of God over your life? Do you view his rule over you as an annoyance, as a hindrance, as a cruel bondage? Or do you view God's rule over you as freedom and life and protection and joy? Because that is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. Unbelievers, like the nations, like the peoples, like the kings, like the rulers in this psalm, unbelievers want to be free to sin. But believers want to be free from sin. And they view the rule of God over their lives as the gracious provision of that freedom. So the question for us is, do you want to be free to sin or do you want to be free from sin? Because if you answer that, you will find which one are you in this psalm. Are you the one asking the question in verse 1, like David? Or are you, the, are you in league with the rulers and the kings trying to throw off God's fetters upon you? When you see our unbelieving society living out these verses, our society, our rulers are living out these verses. They want to be free from the control of God and his standard of righteousness. Are you joining with their cries? Are you saying, yes, I want to be free to do these perverse things? Or are you like the psalmist in verse 1? You have tasted the freedom from sin that you have found in Jesus Christ, and you would never wish to go back to your former manner of life. And you see our unbelieving society rushing headlong to enslave themselves even further to sin. You see them rebelling against your good and your gracious and your just God. And with David, you ask in horror and grief, why are you doing this? So which one are you? This is the nation's rebellion. Now, how does God respond to their rebellion? In verses 4 through 6, we see God's ridicule of them. God's ridicule. Verse 4, is he threatened by their rebellion? No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God sees their behavior as worthy of ridicule. And I want you to notice that verse 2 says, the kings of the earth 
take their stand. But verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So on the one hand, you have the eternal king of heaven laughing at, on the other hand, the futile efforts of the mortal kings of earth. This is like an ant trying to pick a fight with an elephant. And the elephant just squishes the ant down with his foot without even noticing that the ant was trying to pick a fight with him. God is the one who has effortlessly created these rulers by his word. And he can just as effortlessly destroy them by that same word. It's insane and it's evil what these peoples, these rulers are trying to do. And so God laughs and he scoffs at them. So their actions, they don't threaten God, they make him laugh. But God's words will do what to these people? Verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Notice the first word of verse 5, it's then. So now, while the nations are scrambling and they're cobbling together their attempts to fight God now, God laughs now. He scoffs now, but the time is coming then in the future when he will terrify the nations and he will speak to them in his anger and his fury. And what is the message that will so terrify them? Verse 6, he says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So despite the ruler's strenuous and Herculean efforts to tear God's fetters apart, to cast away Christ's cords from them, it will all come to nothing because the Almighty God has already installed his anointed one as king. And he's installed him in Zion, where the temple and the king's palace was located. In other words, it's already over. The reign of Jesus is inevitable. It cannot be thwarted, and it cannot be stopped. You cannot resist it. You cannot fight against it. It's coming whether you like it or not. I remember watching one of those I-shouldn't-be-alive type shows. You know how they document stories of survivors that were in situations that should have ended in their death, but somehow they survived I remember watching one show that was a story of a rugby player who was visiting some kind of wildlife park, and he was walking past some lions. And obviously there was a fence between him and the lions, and unknowingly he walked by a portion of the fence where there was a gap between the bottom of the fence and the ground. And a lion came up and just shot its paw underneath there, knocked him off his feet, and dragged him partway under the fence. And so this guy is hanging on to the fence, literally for dear life. And he recounts how when the lion decided to pull him the rest of the way under, it was as if this rugby player, and rugby players are strong, they are fit, they are burly guys, but it was as if he was offering no resistance at all to the lion. So much stronger was the lion compared to him. I mean, that sends a chill down your spine to be fighting and then just like nothing, just pulling you through like nothing. 
And it is the same with Jesus. You cannot fight against him. You cannot resist him. Like a lion was having its way with that rugby player, Jesus will have his way with you. And for those who do not repent of their rebellious ways, you have already lost this war that you are presuming to fight with the Lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's God's ridicule of these nations who are doing this ridiculous thing, this evil thing. And so we saw the nation speak in verses 1 through 3. We've seen God speak in verses 4 through 6. But now we see the anointed one, the Messiah, the king who rules from Zion speak. Verse 7, he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. In these verses, he is going to declare to these rebellious peoples, he is going to declare to them his right to rule over the nations. He's going to say here that he did not become king by any kind of selfish, willful, presumptuous act on his part. His part. He became king because God chose him to be king and God sovereignly placed him in that position. He says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He goes on to say that this is the decree of God to put him in power. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, it's important here to remember the language of the Davidic covenant. In that covenant, do you remember what God said about himself and his relationship between himself and those of David's descendants who would sit on the throne? Verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, he said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So when David ascended to the throne, when his descendants came to the throne, at least in the case of Solomon, it was them entering into a special and a covenantal father-son relationship with God. And that seems to be what is being referred to here in verse 7. Verse 7 seems to be describing someone who has grown already, but God is saying, today I've begotten you. You are my son. So in this context, this begetting is not a literal and a physical birthing, but the coronation of the king. It is the transition of this person into the kingly relationship to God as his son. And now that was true of David and his descendants, but obviously it is most fulfilled, uh, it is fulfilled most completely in the person of Jesus. Now we know that the Bible teaches that the Son of God has been the Son of God from all eternity. There was never a point in time in which he became the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God because God doesn't change and Jesus is God. He's always been God the Son. But the Bible also talks about Jesus being a son in a couple of additional senses. The sense of becoming the incarnate Son of God. The Son of God was not always a man, right? There was a point in time he took on flesh. He became a man. He became not just God, but the God-man. There was a point in time when that happened, when the Holy Spirit conceived him within the womb of Mary, such that he was called 
the Son of God. And there's another sense in which he became the Son of God, and that is in the sense of becoming the Davidic king. And it's in that sense, that is the sense that we are focusing on this morning. There was a point in time that the New Testament refers to when Jesus was recognized in this other way as the Son of God, that of being the human Davidic king, in the words of the Davidic covenant, the ultimate heir to David's throne. And the New Testament speaks of this. The New Testament consistently refers to this this sense of him becoming the Son of God, it consistently connects that with his resurrection and his ascension. Now, I don't have time to read each of these passages, but if you want to write them down, I'll list them for you. And these passages give reference to Psalm 2. One of them is Acts chapter 13 and verses 26 through 33. The other one is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Verse 4 says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. But the one I want us to look to is Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. You didn't think you'd get away from Hebrews that easily, did you? Hebrews chapter 1. This was probably four years ago we looked at this, so you probably don't remember much about it. But this will be helpful to refresh your memories Hebrews chapter 1, remember verses 1 and 2, the preacher who wrote this letter, he's saying that God in these last days has spoken to us in a son, and then he goes on to describe uh, who this son is as God. For example, verse 3, he says, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. But then he shifts into speaking more of the humanity of Jesus, his qualities as uh, the Son of God in his humanity now. He shifts to describing. He says in verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, so he's speaking of his incarnate life now, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did he do that? It was after his resurrection and he ascended to God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then verse 4 goes on. Having become as much better than the angels. Now as God, Jesus has always been better than the angels. But you remember later on in Hebrews, he says that, that this God, the Son, became a man. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. But once he accomplished his mission, sacrificing himself and being raised from the dead, God exalted him and he became, he received the name much better than the angels in his humanity. And then verse 5, notice what the preacher connects this to, his resurrection and his ascension. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. But then he goes on, he says, And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. So you see the preacher bringing together Psalm 2 with the Davidic covenant. 
So, as God, Jesus has always and forever been the Son of God. But as man, Jesus was not affirmed and identified as the kingly Davidic Son of God in the fullest sense until his resurrection and his ascension when he had completed the work that the Father sent him to do. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that seems to be what David is referring to when he says in chapter, uh, Psalm 2, verse 7, God says, you are my son today. Today I have begotten you. Today you are this king. You are the ultimate fulfillment of what I promised David about the, the man who would sit on his throne forever. You are this king, this king that I have installed upon Zion, my holy hill. And then in verse 8, the Messiah, the Son of God, he recounts for us how the Lord tells his Son to ask him for something. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. As God's Son, this person has the right of inheritance from God. How much stuff does God own? All of it, right? Even the rebels who are trying to revolt against him, he owns them too, and he's going to give all of it to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this son, will he, as the anointed one, as the king, will he have any difficulty at all in putting down his rebellious subjects? Is that going to cause him to break a sweat on his brow? No. Verse 9 You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, how easily can a heavy rod of iron bust through some fragile clay pots, like a hot knife through butter? The Lion of Judah will have no difficulty dealing with his enemies. The Apostle John was given a vision from Christ revealing to John, how this psalm would ultimately be fulfilled. In Acts 4, we saw how the disciples saw it being played out in the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and uh, you know, his resurrection was kind of God saying, your attempt to thwart me did not work. But in Revelation chapter 19, we don't have time to read it, but verses 11 through 21, John sees Psalm 2 play out in the future, in another way, that, that passage says that Jesus comes down out of heaven riding on a white horse. And he's got a name written on him. And later on in that passage, it says that the beast, the Antichrist, he's assembled all the armies of the world and they've come together to make war against the Lamb of God. That's verses 1 through 3 here. And then what happens? The Lord with the sword of his mouth, obliterates them. He defeats them with no trouble at all. This psalm is going to play out that way in the future. That that passage in Revelation speaks to when Jesus will return and he will assume his rightful position on David's throne in Jerusalem and he will reign over the whole earth. That's what we saw in Psalm 72. He is bringing that kingdom to this world, and that is when it will happen. Now, 
How should these rebels respond to these truths that David has been laying out? This brings us to wisdom's response. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. These last three verses are an incredible display of mercy and grace. Because before God rains down destruction upon these rebels, he pauses and he pleads with them to repent, to lay down their arms, to surrender to him. And considering who God is, that shouldn't take us by surprise. That's what God does. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what does he take pleasure? Rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? So he's giving them opportunity to repent here. So what would be the wise course of action, considering how mighty, omnipotent God is and how weak they are? Just little clay pots. Well, the wise response is in verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Those words seem not to go together. How can I worship someone that I fear? How can I rejoice in someone whose very presence makes me tremble. Well, when you are an enemy of God, his holy presence can only strike terror into your heart. It's because you can only expect, you as a sinner before a holy God, you can only expect to experience his fury and his wrath against your sin. But when you are reconciled to God through his Son, through faith in Christ, that changes Because the fear of God that was so filled with terror is now transformed into reverent worship of God. And the trembling before God that was caused by your dread of him is transformed into a trembling that is caused by your overawed rejoicing in him, he who was so merciful to save you. And then in verse 12, the rebels are commanded to kiss the Son. That is, to pay him homage, to acknowledge him as their God and their king. Now remember, David is writing here to pagan rulers, the nations, the peoples, the kings and rulers of other nations who have their own sets of gods and their own thrones that they're committed to. So David is calling on these people to abandon their gods for the Lord. He's calling on them to step down from their thrones and to come and bow before the throne of Christ. And according to verse 11, they cannot do this insincerely. You cannot offer a Judas kiss to Jesus. You cannot feign worship. You cannot fake it and make it into the kingdom. You cannot honor him with your lips while your heart remains far from him. You must worship the Lord with heartfelt reverence. You must rejoice in the Lord with an awed trembling. 
You must sincerely and wholeheartedly kiss Jesus, the Son of God. And if you do not do this, you can only expect to experience the Son's anger and his irresistibly destructive power. He says, kiss the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Jesus Christ, as the King of kings, he has given you today. He is patient with you today. He's giving you time to repent today, but he may not do that tomorrow. Tomorrow may be the day that his wrath is kindled against you. And when it comes, there is no stopping it. So if you have not yet bowed your knee to this king, the question that ought to be bursting from your lips is what must I do to be saved? The answer is at the end of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. To be saved, you must take refuge in this almighty Son. He died on the cross for the sins of his people, rebels just like you. He suffered the wrath of God that you and I deserve to suffer. And then he rose from the dead and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, showing that he is the king. He's the king of kings. As God, he's king. And as the son of David, he's king. And as king, he can save whoever he wants to save. And he's promised here at the end of this psalm, promised you, the rebel, that he wants to save you. And he will save you if only you will turn from your rebellion and you will put your trust in him alone to be your savior and your ruler to be your gracious king. And so we are exhorted to take refuge in him. He promises not to turn you away if you do that. So please turn to him. Our Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Father, as, as believers in Christ, we acknowledge that we were the rebels. We were the ones trying to do our own thing trying to buck off your rule. We were the ones chafing under the commands of your word, but then you opened our blind eyes. You showed us the wickedness of our sin. You showed us the glories and the beauties of Jesus, such that we wanted to be set free from slavery to sin, and we wanted to be enslaved to this king. We wanted to be free to serve this king. And Lord, we thank you for accomplishing that by your grace in us. And Lord, if there's any here who have not yet bowed their knee to you, may you do that work in their hearts. May your word, uh, even this morning, be at work in their hearts. And may your spirit cause them to be born again to a living hope, causing them to take refuge in the Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.